Welcome to the Kind Faith Bible Podcast. Conversations about how we read the Bible for newcomers and nerds alike. Hey everybody, I'm Jeff. I'm Tyler. And we're so glad you're joining us for this Bible conversation. We're continuing to talk about apocalyptic literature, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This whole crazy uh, revealing of God. We talked about that a couple times ago, that apocalypse means revealing. And and so we're, we're getting our, our hands dirty and our feet wet or something. I'm trying to figure out the yeah. analogy to use here in apocalyptic literature. And today we're going to talk about Daniel. That's right. Daniel, kind of like the, one of the original apocalyptic books when you think about it. There's several instances in the Old Testament, but Daniel is a pretty, pretty good go-to. And that gives us some great connections to the book of the Revelation, to other parts of the New Testament. Um, and it's just a fascinating book. So background on Daniel. So Daniel, Daniel's written in the time after the exile of the people of Israel. So it's, it's this... It's this waiting time and a time where the people of God are struggling with their reality that um, that God has disciplined them and taken them from the land. That's right. Any more background we need to know? Um, we kind of mentioned Daniel when we were talking about the prophets uh, and the writings, but you have like the prophet Jeremiah who told the people of Israel, God is sending you into exile. You're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. So settle down, build houses, seek the welfare of the city that I've sent you. And Daniel and his friends are a really good example of what does it look like to be a faithful Israelite in exile. Daniel and his friends, they're from the royal court, but they're conscripted by Nebuchadnezzar and later kings to become some of the highest officials in Babylon. So they're serving this empire that attacked and exiled the people while staying faithful to the God of Israel and, and lots of chaos ensues. Yeah. yeah. And so much of this imagery, the reason why that background really matters is because we're, we're seeing in this season of, of waiting for God as being in a Babylon and being people of exile waiting for the full coming of the kingdom of God. And so all of this imagery and, and the reason we tend to gravitate toward it and revelation is it's all speaking to us because our circumstance parallels Daniel's circumstance. Yeah. So there's good lessons to be learned here, not just from the lion's den and yeah. the visions that he saw earlier, but in the second half. Yeah. And the, <clears throat> the first six chapters are written more like a narrative and you actually see Daniel especially and his other, his friends, but they, uh, they are, survive through many kings and empires. They, they start in Babylon, but then the, the Medes take over. And by the end, in chapter 6, Daniel's uh, under Cyrus the Persian. And so you see actually the fall of kingdoms and Daniel's still there. Uh, in chapter 7 then, and then for the rest of the book, 7 through 12, shifts into a very apocalyptic uh, mode. And so you have these crazy images and this is where we get the revelation type stuff, the four beasts and, uh, this like, you know, crazy goat flying over the land and all this kind of fun stuff that we'll get into. I love crazy goats. I just want to go on record. Yeah. Crazy goats are great. So, so let's dive in. Do we want to start in Daniel seven? I think so. Yeah. So Daniel seven's got these great connections to, to Jesus. Um, and, and we get, um, yeah, just verse two of 
Daniel 7. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Just that alone has these huge connections um, scripturally, but that was just what I glanced at. What were the things you'd highlight in this? Um, yeah, and even, so I'll read the next verse. So we're right at the beginning of the chapter. You mentioned the four winds of heaven, and then verse three is, and then there were four beasts coming up out of the sea, different from one another. And um, he sees this really scary image of beasts that are that are more monster-like than any actual animal. There, there's a lion who has eagle's wings and the wings get plucked off and then he's standing on his feet like a man and then another beast like a bear and a leopard with four wings of a bird. And then there's the fourth beast that's so terrifying and dreadful that Daniel can't even describe it. He, he just says, I, I, I don't even know, I can't put a label on it. It's just a beast, you know. And already both the winds and the sea and the beasts take us to Revelation. You can start, if you're, if you're tracking with the book of Revelation, you're seeing, oh, John the Revelator was thinking of Daniel. Because in chapter 7 uh, of Revelation, he talks about the angels holding back the four winds. And uh, was it chapter 12 and 13, you have beasts coming out of the sea. And so he's tracking with this image here. Mm-hmm. And I also make the connection to, <laughs> to part of the chaos of creation. One of the things that's important to note biblically is that, that seas and oceans, never a good thing. There's never anything yeah. good that, that comes of that. Um, the Israelites were not sea-loving people. And so water and chaos, so in Genesis 1, the wind hovers over the chaotic waters to bring about creation as God God organizes creation. And <clears throat> then here you've got chaotic waters and and beasts coming up out of it. And, yeah. and then it pushes to revelation as well. Yeah. So <clears throat> here, one thought, this is a kind of big level picture and kind of sets it in its historical context a little bit. There's actually a lot in this image of the beasts. And especially in chapter eight, there's this crazy image of this ram with two horns. And, but then out of, out of nowhere, this goat comes with a big horn that, that, um, the goat is flying across the land without touching the ground and it de- demolishes the ram. And then the the horn of the goat splits into four horns. And then there's one horn that becomes boastful and, and big. Okay, so what's going on there? Actually, there's a lot. This is the, the first first level historical context. I got really nerdy here. Are we going to refer it all to the Adam Sandler skit about the goat? Is there a goat? There is an Adam Sandler skit with a goat, but that's where my brain went. You go biblical. I'll go comedy. Well, I was going to say, so the first, and anyone, you could all do this. Go look up uh, or jog your memory about Alexander the Great. He was the one who conquered the world by the age of 32 um, and set up the Greek Empire and out of, uh, after he died, his kingdom immediately split up into all of his generals, into four in particular. Four pieces. Right? And so you had the Ptolemies and Seleucids and all those guys. And so as you're tracking with this, you're, and even if you just do a quick Wikipedia search of Alexander the Great's conquests and then go read chapter seven and chapter eight, you're going to start recognizing, oh, he's clearly talking about Alexander the Great. So I was going to say, do you know why Alexander is the goat? The greatest of all time? Yeah. I mean, when it comes to world conquerors. He is the goat. Well, (laughs) Rome might be. I don't know. Well, he was before Rome. So The big question is, who has seven Super Bowls out of Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar? Neither. Good point. 
I guess it's Tom Brady. But I, uh, yeah. Well, I, I just so want to go on. Daniel is talking about Tom Brady. Poss- yeah, I mean, if, if we're saying that this is a symbol rather than a code. <laughs> but uh, Daniel, I, I want to go on record. He might be the first person to use this acronym of GOAT. Oh, snap. That's amazing. Okay, this is too nerdy. and We went downhill yeah. fast. <laughs> I had to go there. But, um, okay, so... First level, uh, and let's let's back up because I I was just being a little too silly for just a little bit there. But you have uh, in chapter seven, Daniel is in the time of Babylon. So under actually Nebuchadnezzar's son, it says it the the chapter seven puts us in the context of Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son. So still in Babylon, and Daniel gets a vision of four consecutive beasts, which as you start to read the description are four empires. And so you have Babylon followed by Medo-Persian Empire, followed by Greece. And at least in the in this initial reading, it would seem that the this fourth beast, and then especially that goat in chapter eight is Alexander setting up the Greek empire, which out of Alexander comes uh, from the Seleucid line is Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. So that was in about 160 BC. Yeah, you're going to have to back back yeah. up with the history lesson. And and a note here too on on content. The book of Daniel is is particularly and generally concerned with kingdoms. We should we yeah. should have yeah. we should have been aware of that beforehand because early on in Daniel the the vision comes or the dream comes to the king about the the statue and the rock that gets carved out and knocks down the statue. And each of those are well described in the book itself. And so we know that, that this apocalyptic literature in Daniel is concerned with kingdoms <clears throat> and world rules. Yeah. And so, so Seleucids and you said Antiochus Epiphanes. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, an important, that's an important historical figure. Because um, maybe this is a spoiler alert to what you're saying, but Antiochus Epiphanes comes and sets himself up in the temple and goes into the Holy of Holies and becomes the abomination um, of all things for the people of Israel <clears throat> during the Maccabees, pre-Maccabees, right before this was the this was setting up the Maccabean set up the revolt. Maccabean revolt. Yeah. yeah. And so, so he's a he's an important historical name to know because he he desecrated the temple in a way that it had never been desecrated before or after. Yeah. So this uh, and again, the reason for kind of this deep dive into the history lesson is for the Jews of the the centuries before the coming of Christ and even into the first century um, A.D. where we get the New Testament. This would have been one of the 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 most intense moments in their memory. And so Daniel is living before this, looking forward to this awful, arrogant king who's going to rise. And he's giving, he's giving um, a view to say kingdom after kingdom will rise and fall. And there's even going to be one who's going to f- seem like the worst of them all, right? They're, they're, and if you're God's people living in exile and you're seeing wave after wave of evil king coming and oppressing you, and all of a sudden you're living in the time, this would have been 160s BC, and Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means like son of the divine, right? And so he, he actually, putting himself out there as a god, seemingly in control of all, he starts to, to kill and 
intensely persecute the people of God. He would, there's stories in the book of the Maccabees where he would force uh, Jewish people to eat pork. And if they wouldn't, he would kill them. He would force them to um, worship to a false God in the temple. And that's like this, this desolating sacrilege is the, the verbiage of Daniel. And so if you're living in that time, um, <clears throat> I think without Daniel, without any context, you would think God's abandoned me. Right. I thought we were following God and he's abandoned us. Yeah. But if you have Daniel and this became such a powerful book, especially as you were living through this time, you would go back and you would see, oh, actually, God's already told us that kingdoms are going to rise and fall. And God is actually the one orchestrating all of it. And even though even this king who, for all intents and purposes, is the worst that we can possibly imagine even he has his end. Uh, God has already decreed his end. It's going to happen, and there's going to be, we'll, get, we'll point out a few verses, but Daniel is very adamant to say, even this intense persecution has a limited time span, and it's going to end. So God the is- comfort of the book is the marked endings. So in case everybody's confused, yeah. let's let's run the timeline really slowly. So. Yeah. Daniel goes into exile in Babylon. The Babylonian king then, and the Babylonian kingdom then, falls or concedes to the Medes, and the Medes take over. Then the Medes fall to the Persians, and Cyrus the Persian. Little historical connect. Um, That is when the Greek Empire is beginning to rise. Remember the, um, you might have seen the movie, the 300. Yeah, it was Cyrus the Persian who was attacking Athens and trying to get to to Greece, and so that's that's the historical connect. So that empire rises and falls, and then Daniel's describing. So Daniel's describing the rise of Alexander the Great, the goat, the greatest of all time. Yeah, his kingdom splits into four, and then the Seleucid Empire gives rise to Antiochus Epiphanes. Yeah. And so this is now we're, we're in chapter eight. It makes it a lot clearer, but you have, um, this is weird. This is the, the, the weird symbolic nature of apocalyptic. They're using animal figures like the ram and then the horn, which also becomes a stand in for a King. Right. And so the horn, um, the, the small horn out of the fourth horn had eyes and it was boasting. Right. And this is all in chapter eight. And so as you're tracking, if you're living in that time, you're thinking, oh, yeah, I I know my history. I know Alexander came, conquered the world out of his kingdom came four, and out of one of them came now. Now we're living under Antiochus. Right. And so there you would be tracking this if you were a Jew living in 160 B.C. Um, But yeah, for us today that that takes you, you need to get dig dig into some history books to yeah. figure that out and but. it's easy to to untether this from its historical context and from what is actually being intended to be described here and and then we we want to lay it into our future way too quickly before we we really get a sense of yeah. what's happening and so uh, and i know this is a big fire hose for for everyone what we, we said a little bit ago and maybe just one more time it it, it bears repeating. I think one of the major takeaways for God's people in any time reading this is God is in control and he's actually 
decreed ahead of time, these, these kingdoms, as bad and evil as they are, they're going to rise and they're going to fall. And they have their, their, they have their day, but their, their day is short. And God is actually the one in control of all of them. Uh, now, so all of this takes us to 160 BC, really important Maccabean revolt. That's where the, the celebration of Hanukkah comes from. When did Daniel go into exile? This would have been, uh, well, the Babylonian exile was around 522, uh, five, no, 586, so in that time period. Got it. So just to, and I asked that not to quiz you, but just to get us in the context. So 160 is the Maccabean revolt. 70 AD is the destruction of the temple. Jesus is zero. And then if, if you come back to uh, 522, 486, 586, I'm not sure what that is, but um, three or four centuries before comes Daniel being yeah. taken into exile. That's right. Um, now this is also, let's, let's shift gears cause that, that, and we would love to get some questions about that historical context. The more you learn about that whole thing, the whole, the whole rest of the book of Daniel opens up in, in new ways, but this is also an apocalyptic literature that's giving us an insight into who God is. And it continues to, to bear fruit in multiple generations. Uh, it's not just, we're not for us cause you, you started, the podcast by saying this is a chapter about Jesus uh, and I want to get us there. So how is that true if it's about Alexander and yeah. the Maccabean revolt and all of that? Yeah. Um, Yay and amen. And we, it's, this is not just uh, Christian ingenuity and we're, we're twisting the text into new things. Actually, um, we have plenty of evidence in the New Testament and in early Jewish literature that they kept reading uh, Daniel in new ways. And so they, like, even up until zero AD, uh, Jewish people were saying, okay, I, there, there is an element of all of this that happened with Alexander and Antiochus, but there's other elements of these visions that are bigger, larger than life. They, they seem to be pointing to something even beyond them. And so they were kind of refiguring it and re reworking it and looking at this and saying, okay, well, it looks like maybe this fourth beast we're still waiting for the fourth beast. It wasn't Greece. It, maybe it's Rome. And so you're starting to see uh, Jewish thinkers and followers of God for hundreds of years coming back to these texts and they find that they, they keep bearing fruit. And this is a little bit of what we were talking about the last couple of weeks where reading apocalyptic literature as symbol rather than code, there's a sense that it was rooted in some historical context. And maybe the, the first time Daniel wrote this down, he's thinking of, Alexander and Antiochus, but there's other elements where God is saying, I'm, I'm giving you insight into how I'm working in the world and how I'm orchestrating the rise and fall of all of these empires. Here are symbols for how this whole yeah. thing works. Yeah. And not code to figure out the future. Not as, yeah. Well, it can still point us there, it, it, but more it, it points us to who God is and what is God doing in the world in some really fascinating ways. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I think we're on really firm ground looking at a text like Daniel 7 and still saying it, it teaches us a lot about Jesus is because Jesus himself quotes Daniel 7 quite a bit. 
um, and he, he about himself. He says, I'm the one that Daniel 7 was talking about. So maybe we can look at that section for a little bit. Yeah, tell me, tell me where I should read. So um, in the midst, so he has these four beasts coming, and that's mm-hmm. crazy. And again, those beasts show up again in <clears throat> Revelation um, as the beasts coming out of the sea. There's a lot of four beast stuff going on in the Bible in general, because Ezekiel has a, a wheel with some beasts on it. Yep. And yeah, there's, there's beasts happening all over the place. That's right. Um, and a lot of them are riffing off each other. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and, and so one, uh, okay, one last kind of rabbit hole that I, I think is helpful, <clears throat> but the, the beasts take us actually uh, step back all the way back to Genesis chapter one first. Humankind, Adam and Eve, were created to rule over the beasts. So we were created as God's image bearers to take care of the planet and to rule over his creation. And, and the beasts were one of the ones on the list. Um, throughout the story, um, because of sin, because of greed, because of evil empires, it's almost like the, the image of the beast gets distorted. And now when you, could, when you come to places like Daniel, those beasts that the, 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 the Adamic people were supposed to rule over are now ruling over them. And so there's this like these, these beasts that were supposed to be tame animals have turned into monsters and are taking over the world, right? And so there, that Daniel is riffing off Genesis one in a really compelling in way. a lot of ways, yeah. yeah. And so there's that like, anytime you see a beast overtaking a human in the Bible, there you're seeing a distortion of how God had intended things to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here the beasts are stand-ins for evil empires and kings and all this stuff. But but the image is really important. The fact that it's a beast is taking us all the way back to oh, we were created to rule peacefully over the beasts and now the beasts are monsters ruling over us there's something wrong here yeah and and i and i appreciate you bringing that out because it becomes easy for us to try to say oh see there's a bear there and the red symbol for russia is a bear i mean this was a big deal when i i mean i grew up in the 80s and yeah. in the yeah. middle of the cold war or the toward the end of the cold war and and everybody said that russia is the bear and um, China's the leopard and as they're identifying these things and and that's that's all well and good but it it, it and was wrong um, but it misses the point of the reality of of the passivity of man in it and in our sin and how we're allowing uh, other powers to rule yeah and, and not pursuing God's kingdom first so that's a helpful yeah. corrective. <laughs> So let's look. We're in Daniel 7. Let's do verse 13 and 14. Um, this, <clears throat> this cuts through all that noise to say these beasts. And again, think of yourself as a follower of God in the midst of exile. All of this would be really <coughs> overwhelming and scary. And you would think, you know, maybe my God isn't powerful. My God isn't real. Like the, these beasts look way more powerful than my little faith because our temple got destroyed and whatever. And then right into the middle of that, uh, we see Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. I saw in this night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Uh, and we used to unpack that actually just before that Daniel started with a great vision of this, this figure called the ancient of days, which is clearly the creator God. 
Um, the creator God took, took his seat. Clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And it says, uh, this is, I, I backed up to verse 10. <clears throat> the court sat in judgment and the books were open. This is a picture of the, the king of creation sitting on the throne and he is the one in charge. He's the one making rulings, not the four beasts. None of those have the power that this Ancient of Days has. And then after that, you have this son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, receiving a kingdom from this Ancient of Days. And this is all right in the middle of, mm-hmm. it would look like the beasts are about to take over and there's no hope for God's people. And Daniel sees this vision. So, any, yeah, any questions? What, what thoughts come up as you kind of see that in the midst of, the beasts and the swirling and all that. So many connections come out of that. It, 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 the, the piece of it is that God is on his throne and, and Jesus has his kingdom. And, um, and I love how it lands right in the middle of all this craziness that's going on. Yeah. So we just did this crazy conversation about Babylonians to Medes to Persians to uh, Greeks to Romans and all of those empires and none of it is is bigger than this central passage that says god is on his throne right Uh, and in the midst of that he then sees this picture of uh, verse 13 one like a son of man now Mm -hmm. that phrase is son of adam uh, which is why I kind of went and took us down that rabbit trail of Adam was created to rule over the beasts. Uh, and now we have th- that phrase that in generic terms just means one of the human race, right? A human being, um, a son of Adam, a son of man. And uh, so Daniel sees a human figure being elevated in a way that no human figure ever was to, to come and be, be presented as an equal beside the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is the one who is the king of the the cosmos. He's the creator and the ruler and the judge. And this human being is being elevated. And it says, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations should serve him. And he has a kingdom that will never pass away. Like, what's going on? How is a human being elevated to that level? And, um, And then just to, there's a lot we could go into, but one, I'll cut us to, uh, to Jesus, shall I? You shall. So let's do um, Matthew twenty four fifteen. Um, actually, s- keep that place, but let's actually start a little later. Twenty six sixty four is more clear. Um, so this is Jesus speaking in, in Matthew twenty six sixty four in his trial. Uh, and the, the high priest is saying, tell us, are you the Messiah, the, the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says, do you have it? You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Yeah. Uh, and, and the high priest tears his robes. Knows exactly what Jesus just insinuated yeah Yeah. um i like to point out jesus is not describing his mode of transportation (laughs) this he is absolutely riffing off of the apocalyptic metaphor of daniel 7 yeah i say like son of man is his title for himself um and to be seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven does not mean 
hey, I have a new way of transporting myself. I have this cloud mobile and it goes it goes really fast. Yeah. It's Jesus saying, I'm the one who is about to receive all dominion and power and authority. So coming on the clouds is not about uh, transportation locomotion. It's about power and authority. It's a symbol that he is becoming the king. Yep. And and just to remind you, this is what Daniel 7.13 says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. Jesus is claiming that right there in the midst of his trial. Yeah. Yeah. So that that just helps to see how did <clears throat> Jesus read this passage where, again, in its original, uh, what was that, 4th or 5th century <clears throat> BC context, the first reference might have been something like the fall of kingdoms leading up to Antiochus, this, this really intense persecution. And it was this hope for God's people. It says, God's still in control. Don't worry about Antiochus. God's got him covered. Uh, and you're going to be all right. Like God's still on your side. Even if you die because of this, God's still on your side. There's, there's a lot of hope there, but it, it still left some things unanswered because they, they got through Antiochus and they had a little bit of peace, but then Rome came and now they're back under uh, oppressive rule again. And so the people of God are continuing to ask, well, it seems like there needs to be a, f- a more fuller fulfillment of whatever we were hoping for. Right? And so now Jesus comes on the scene as a, as a prophet in the first century, and he starts using words saying, what you were hoping for, the ultimate hope, it's me. I'm the one that's going to bring the prophecies of Daniel to its ultimate fulfillment. So can I ask you a question and dig in on this? So would you say, when Jesus says to the chief priests, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds, coming on the clouds of heaven. That Jesus is not talking about, you'll be sorry when you kill me because I'm coming back someday and I'm going to bring judgment when I come back. Ooh, I'm going to put a little pin in that and stay tuned for next week. (laughs) Because I want us, next week we're going to talk about the Revelation again and and get to some of the, the specifics through that book. And one of them, at the end of the book, there's this picture of the the Jesus figure coming and a lot of people have interpreted it as this violent revolution where Jesus is going to come back and just massacre all of his enemies. And spoiler alert, I don't think that's at all how we should read that text. Um, but yeah, to so is he saying, you better watch out because I'm about to come and destroy you. I'm, I'm going to come again. Yeah. Like you're going to regret this decision that yeah. you've made. You're going to kill me this time. But when I come back next time, it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. That's how this gets read a lot of times. I guess I guess I w- it was a leading question yeah. because because the the first meaning of what Jesus says here is often missed. Yeah. The first meaning is I am the one promised from Daniel in the book of Daniel who is receiving the fullness of the kingdom and this event of the crucifixion is my coronation. Yes. This is the moment where I receive authority, power, and all that was promised in that section in the middle of Daniel 7. Right. That's the first meaning. The second meaning we can talk about, and I think next week we will, but it's important that we not miss it. For my whole Christian life until maybe a decade ago, that's how I read this. I read it as, oh, they're going to be really sorry when Jesus comes again. And so just to... Fascinating to take us back to Daniel, and maybe we could start to wrap up on this. But 
that idea that the way that Jesus shows his power, like the, the most powerful thing God ever did was die on the cross. That is his coronation. That's the moment he becomes king and ruler of the world. There's something, and that takes even more to unpack. But that idea of conquering through suffering is, it, is actually there in Daniel chapter 7. Where? Show me. So uh, to, go, to go further, and um, I'm going to go really fast, lightning speed through some of this, but that image of the Son of Man coming and receiving <clears throat> power and dominion and authority in verse mm-hmm. 13 and 14. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, verse 15, Daniel is very anxious and worried and alarmed, and he, he's like, okay, what's going on here? Can you explain this to me? And as you read through the explanation, the explanation is that this fourth beast and the horns and the boasting, and it says, look at uh, verse 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, the time when the saints possessed the kingdom. And there's something mysterious going on here. And maybe I'm just kind of just barely touching on it. But there's something about the suffering of God's people and the suffering of the Son of Man who is taking on the suffering of God's people that in the midst of being trampled upon, that's actually how the victory is coming. And Daniel doesn't fully give us the, the, the uh, theology of the cross here. But you see this also in uh, the second place that we don't have time to go to. But chapter 9, you also see something about this unfolding of history comes when the anointed one is cut off and in the midst somehow of the anointed one the messiah being killed is the way that god is actually achieving a victory super again mysterious but i think there's just a there's like some i guess we come what we call easter eggs here little little uh seeds that aren't going to fully blossom until we see jesus but even here in this apocalyptic text, there's this mysterious pointer that the way that God is going to prevail is somehow connected with suffering. And so anyway, that um, I, I, I think that what Jesus is doing is right in line. He's not going out on a limb and he's not interpreting Daniel in a way that is false, obviously. But he, he's unpacking in a way maybe not everyone was expecting, but he's saying, hey, you should have seen this the whole time. Don't you know that the Messiah had to suffer and so receive his kingdom? Like they're there. We should have seen this the whole time, but, but yeah. 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 It, it is, <clears throat> it is to say, I just looked at uh, chapter eight verse or chapter seven, verse 25. And you know, the, one of the uh, horns is speaking against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the most high. Um, and he'll think to change the times and the laws and, and this this suffering that comes is 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 a suffering that precedes the birth. It's the pain before the joy that consistently is the testimony. So it it's here in Daniel. We see it fulfilled in Jesus. The suffering before the resurrection. It it's the way that God works. Yeah, I love that. So big idea of. <laughs> Of Daniel and apocalyptic literature, if you're wondering, what was all that conversation about? God is moving powerfully in history. He is in charge of the rising and the falling of kingdoms, and he is on his throne, and suffering does precede victory. And those are the big themes of the apocalyptic literature, because those 
those pieces of apocalyptic literature are written from a people and with a people who are currently suffering under the oppression of, yeah. of an authority. And their big question is, why am I suffering? So I, I think for our listeners and watchers, for me, it, you know, at the point where I'm experiencing suffering, the great apocalyptic hope is that the king comes. Jesus is on his throne. He is... Uh, the coronation becomes completed. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's even throughout history, it's been people who are suffering and actually experiencing real persecution where these texts, like you just mentioned, take on the most light. Revelation becomes this important, powerful text for people that are actually living in persecution. Mm-hmm. For us comfortable in the West that don't really have <clears throat> to deal with, I might die today because of my faith, we get to get into really sometimes fun, sometimes uh, distracting conversations about what does this text mean and un- unlocking the code. But it's almost like we're reading it from a place of comfort and the, the way that you really find its power is from a place of suffering. When you're in oppression and suffering. Yeah. So basically this whole thing's an argument for uh, a pre-tribulation rapture. Is that what you're saying? Oh, no. <laughs> next listen, week. listen to our conversation from last week and next yeah. week. So hey. this was a fire host and I hope this was fun. I, I had fun. Please, please... Email us your questions yeah, at thekindfaith.gmail.com. And we are so thankful that you tuned in and checked in with us. We are, we are praying that this is a blessing for you. God bless you and have a great week. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find more about the Kind Faith community at thekindfaith.org.